So this morning we're back in letter to the Hebrews, and we will begin our look at chapter 2, but I wanted to read for you chapter 1, which we've been spending, you know, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Hebrews, but I wanted to go ahead and read through what we've covered in chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? A breathtaking chapter, to be sure. If you're paying attention, if you're remembering, hopefully, some of what we discussed in the weeks that it took to cover that chapter, you understand how much weight and gravity there is in that text, in those verses. They're astounding. And yet... The author of Hebrews has been pulling us along and showing us in sweeping language the glories of the Son. And hopefully we have been astounded by what he has said and the simple explanation of those truths, what he has reminded us of. And for the most part, up to this point, there's nothing that should be up for debate. There's nothing that even his hearers would have heard in this first chapter, and hopefully nothing that you've heard as we've covered this first chapter that you would say, wait a minute, I don't know about that. Like th- This should be beyond dispute. This is core teaching about Jesus. If you believe the basic premise of Christianity that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the Son of God, then all of this is simply implication, Right? It's just the next logical step from, okay, if he is in, is in fact the I am, the one who is there, the eternal God, then all of this makes sense. Now, if anything we did say or anything I just read did cause you to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't know about that, then maybe you should come talk to me, please do, and I'm being serious. But... It is also the author's intention that all of this serves in a way for him to lead you down a path. And you don't necessarily know where he's leading you, where he's taking you, but by the time you understand his plot, it's too late, and immediately you stand face to face with a deadly, serious challenge and an imperative, a command. It's a trap if you will. He has said it. We have walked in willingly. And now he turns to spring it. And we should let him do so. 
We need to hear what he has to say and obey. So if you will, look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, literally, because of this, because of these things, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the trap has sprung. And we see that the author's intentions are not merely to fascinate our minds or to warm our hearts with lofty teaching about Jesus. Rather, the author's primary concern is pastoral and centered on the endurance and the perseverance of his hearers. Notice the closeness that this passage implies. He says, we must pay much closer attention. The main thrust of this passage is, called, is to call us to a serious Christ-centered commitment to what we have heard. A seriousness and an attentiveness without which will cause us to drift. This was a real concern for the author, for his hearers, for persecution had broken out against the church. And there were many among the, among the audience or his intended recipients who thought, well, Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it's not worth continuing to cling to Christ or to call myself a believer and publicly proclaim who I am in Christ because of the negative side effects. Maybe it's not worth being extremely devoted to the way of the Lord because of what might happen to me. Or maybe for some it had just lost its luster. I can't help but think of the parable of the sower. When I read passages like this, some seed fell among rocky ground on a path. Some fell in good soil. right? And you see the result of each of those recipients of the Word. Some receive it very gladly and with great joy in the beginning. But then the cares of this world, the thorns or the ravens, come and take the seed away. Or choke it out. This exhortation is in the imperative. It's a command. And it's also accompanied by warnings and examples and intensifying statements of proof. Before we get into the details of verse 1, and we will spend all our time on verse 1, because I think it is the, the crux of the entire book. This is his argument. This is his thesis. The main thing he wants you, the author wants you to take away from reading his book or his letter is you must pay much closer attention to what you have heard lest you drift. And it's repeated throughout the book, these exhortations. And we'll see those as we try to understand this passage. But before we get into verse 1, I want to address some questions that might be on your mind and raise some questions that the text mandates that we have or that we ask before we continue. So as our brother Jonah discussed last week, we often come to the Bible or come to a particular text in the Bible with our own set of assumptions or beliefs. And it informs our interpretation. So everyone has a lens through which they see the world and through which you would understand any type of writing 
You, have multiple, you might have multiple sets of lenses through which you see things. But we all have a lens through which we understand the text. And part of the task of being a good student of Scripture is critiquing your own lens. And if necessary, changing that lens or breaking down incorrect or not God-honoring presuppositions that you come to the text with. The reason we do this, the reason we come with these presuppositions is we want to let our conscience off the hook. Texts in the Bible have a tendency of making you feel uncomfortable. Am I right? I mean, if you've never felt uncomfortable after reading a passage of Scripture, your lens is messed up. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of bone and marrow. It cuts. It's living. So most of us come to the text with these presuppositions or these, these tactics in order to soften the blow or blunt the cut. Most of us don't like to be under the heavy hand of biblical conviction. Right? There are spiritual masochists, but most of us don't like to feel uneasy. Right? That's just natural. So what issue is there with this text? What problem is it raising? What uncomfortable question is it posing to our minds? And the issue here, if you're paying attention, is the perseverance of the saints. The author is writing to a group of people who claim Christ as Lord, and he says to them, therefore you must pay much closer attention to this, lest you drift away from it. This raises the question, can you lose your salvation? Is this a real threat to drift? What does he mean by drift? Is he saying that this would ultimately end in ruin? And we can immediately run to doctrines or teachings as like safe spaces, right? We'll talk a little bit about that later. We can immediately say, well, it's not possible to lose your salvation, and I would agree with that. But you can miss what he's saying by trying to protect yourself from the implications here. In this book, this book of Hebrews, many, including many of my friends, have stumbled over this teaching. It's here in chapter 2, it's also in chapter 6, and it's in chapter 10, some of the most difficult portions of the New Testament dealing with this very issue. Can you fall away? And that's why I believe many people avoid preaching through it. And when you get to those passages, you just kind of go quickly and use those safe spaces and safe phrases. So a few questions that I want you to ask and kind of mull over as we go through this. First, do I take the author seriously that the possibility of drifting away from what we have heard, is a real threat. Do I take him seriously there? Second, what ideas or even truths do I run to in order to soften the hard realities or hard questions presented in this text? Does that make sense? Like, what, what do you jump to immediately when you read this to think, oh, well, that makes me feel uneasy or, or makes me start asking hard questions. What do you jump to immediately to try and soften that or dull that or mute it? And third, does my life reflect the serious paying attention that is commanded in this text? So those are the three questions. Just mull over those, think about those. I think those are good questions. So, what does our church believe about the security of the believer and about perseverance? This is from the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 5. This is the second half of it, and this is kind of a preview for what I talked about two weeks ago and going over the Baptist Faith and Message. This is good stuff. This is what it says. 
all true believers will endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach to the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And for the whole article, and I hope you felt the encouragement in that, I believe that. That is true. There are almost 50 biblical citations in that document for that article. Two of them, we won't go through all of them. Two of them that I want to mention um, is Romans 8, 29 through 13. Uh, I'm sorry, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Revisit this text often. It is pure gold. In fact, it is called the golden chain in some circles. There is no one in the original group, those whom he foreknew, who do not ultimately make it to the last group. Those whom he, those whom he, those whom he. It is the same group of people, those whom he foreknew, who will ultimately be glorified with him. And then another text that this article cites, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, meaning there are those who have left the faith. They were in us in some sense, with us in some sense, but now they went out from us. So they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You've got to shift gears to kind of understand John's language. John tends to talk in circles. But the idea here is that there are those who fall away or who abandon the faith. But they go out from us so that it may become plain that they were never really of us in the beginning. So that's why the, the article that I read from the Baptist Faith and Message begins with all true believers. So in this room, there are, in general, three types of people. The first group, you're in Christ and you have confidence in your Savior. You do not doubt your salvation and you strive to hold fast or you strive not to drift. That's the first group. The second group, you have confidence in your salvation experience and your testimony and you rest your confidence primarily on that one-time experience. And so you don't feel the need to strive or hold fast because you feel so safe and secure in your salvation. You might say, once saved, always saved. And you go on with your life however you see fit, knowing you've got your free pass to heaven. And the third group, you struggle with doubt and you cannot find peace or confidence. You don't know that you're saved. You have no confidence that on the day of judgment you will ultimately endure. You look at your life and sin you struggle with and say, how can I truly be one of His? And if you're, one in, if you're in one of the last two groups, this text is for you today. And it speaks truth to correct both errors. 
If you're in the first category, one that I believe is the correct stance, this text serves as a sober reminder that you must continue to pay the closest attention to the truth in order to be safe from drifting away. So regardless of where you are or where you find your heart today, this text is for you. So the author has sprung the trap, and here we are. We followed him along up to this point. We've agreed. We've said yes and amen to everything he said about Jesus. And then he says, if you believe this, if you've tracked with me so far up to this point, here's what this means. So he says, therefore, we must. We must. So the therefore, I I said earlier, can literally be translated because of this, referring to all of chapter 1. Namely, the rock-solid case that Jesus is the highest exalted one, even above the angels. It's important to realize and believe that Christianity is more than just a set of wonderful and beautiful teachings or beliefs about Jesus. We say we believe. It's not all cranial, mental. It's not just a creed. There is a therefore connected with all of the teaching that we have. You have to be very careful here because this can become an, an idea of a new type of works righteousness, right? Just because there is an implication or how we ought to live as believers, as a result of the truth, we can think or we can drift into thinking that it is our effort or our exertion that keeps us in grace. And that is not the case. The author of Hebrews himself says in chapter 10, verse 14, For by a single offering, He, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected those who are being made holy. For He has finished the work of making holy those who are currently now being made holy. Does that make sense? It's an already not yet dynamic The Christ is working through those who are His, whom the Father has given to Him, and one day it will come to completion. But by that single offering on the cross, He has perfected once for all time those who are being sanctified. We didn't begin by grace and finish it out by works. We're not saved by grace and then we keep ourselves in through our efforts. That is not the gospel. It is all by grace. But with all that said, we do need to hear what the author has to say, and we need to understand that this command is not optional. It's not something that we can ignore and just hope to arrive safely in the kingdom of God. This is something that we must do. Therefore, we must. He includes himself in the command. The intensity of this statement shouldn't be overlooked. It is rooted in the magnitude of all that we've seen and investigated regarding the glory of Jesus. So think about it this way. The degree or magnitude of the glory of Christ is a corollary or translates to the intensity or the magnitude or the weight that we should feel in keeping this command. That's his point. He he is a master in using words. He is a master preacher, I believe. This is most likely a sermon. And his point in chapter 1 is to raise your emotional awareness and the intensity that you would feel regarding the teaching of Christ and then to transfer that to the intensity that you should feel to pay attention to what we have heard. And so now we come to this phrase, therefore we must pay much closer attention. In the immediate context, if we go with the reading, pay much closer attention, the comparative is directed to two things. So that's a long way of saying, what is he saying that we should pay more attention than? Right? So he said we should pay more attention, more than what? 
In the immediate context, he's saying more attention to what we have heard than all of the Old Testament saints paid to the Old Covenant. So you can think of any example you want of the intensity or devotion or concern for holiness that you saw in Old Testament saints. Pick whatever hero you want. Daniel, Moses, Joseph, all these people that, that, you know, the heroes of the faith and the attention that they paid to the Old Covenant. And he says we should pay much closer attention to this covenant. So that's the comparative there. Second, this is more implicit. He's saying you should pay much closer attention than you are now. It's kind of open-ended. It doesn't have an immediate specific reference point, though they're both kind of implied. So pay much more attention to what you've heard than you're paying to it now. Wherever you are, and he's writing to a large group of people, wherever you are in your faith, however much attention you're paying to the things we have heard, pay much more attention. And the term he uses here, to pay attention, and, and I know this, this might sound odd, but this is a nautical term. It, it's translated mostly in the Bible as beware, or, or the way it is here, pay attention. But the idea is literally lashing yourself to a dock or having the rope that connects your ship to an anchor tightly tied. So think of that imagery that paying attention to is, is a very intentional thing, and it's not just in our minds. It is our entire life clinging to something, bracing ourselves, lashing ourselves to something. For a few reasons, this could also be translated, we must pay the utmost or the most attention to the things we have heard. Because the answer to the question, what is he comparing it to, is kind of open-ended. He's just saying more than, more than anything. So if you're more than anything, you're the most. So pay the most attention to what we have heard. The utmost attention to this. So there are two important questions or implications from this that I want to go into uh, right now before we come to the application section. Is what you have heard, or what we have heard, right? and I'll just go with that as the author says it, we'll explain that here in a little bit. Is what we have heard what we pay most attention to in our lives? Is the gospel, is the truth about Jesus, is, is this what we pay the most attention to? And this can be a day-by-day -day question for a lot of us. On some days, the answer might be yes. And on many days, the answer might be emphatically no. And this is why I so often pray against distractions both in this room and in my life elsewhere, we are so easily distracted. The urgent things in our lives have a tendency to be tyrannical. They seep their way into every thought and every emotion and every action. We feel the pressure to get these things done. And an example for this is, is what can often happen or what you can see in short-term mission trips. If, if, you've ever gone, if you ever have gone on one or have met people who have, they would all testify, most of them, that when you go, when you leave your home, when you leave the tyranny of the urgent and all the bills you got to pay and all the do's and the don'ts of your life structure here and you take yourself out of that and put yourself in a context where the sole purpose is missions or gospel, then you're able to focus solely on that. And then you reinsert yourself back into the world and you're behind because you've been gone for a few weeks and then the tyranny of the urgent just takes over. So what that demonstrates, that's, that's a pro and a con for short-term mission trips, but it, it's at least valuable in that it shows us the nature of our hearts, that we are so easily distracted. 
Even after powerful experiences overseas or maybe in another state ministering to people, all of those experiences and the intensity we might feel about that and the desire to continue in those things when we come back and reinsert ourselves into our lives, it just goes away. This is how the evil one causes us to drift and how he causes many to make shipwreck of their faith and for some to come to utter destruction and it is through distractions. C.S. Lewis wrote um, a wonderful book. It's deeply convicting. Screw Tape Letters. If you've never read it, um, do so. And the premise is it's a, it's a more experienced demon counseling an under-demon how to tempt a Christian and how to convince him not to follow Jesus. And this is what he says. It does not matter how small the sins are. And I would add here, parenthetically, how normal the urgent distractions are. Provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings without milestones, without signposts. So that's the first question. Has, does what we have heard or, or is what we have heard the most important thing in your life? Is it what you pay the most, most attention to? Secondly, almost more importantly, what does paying attention to it look like? What are we even saying What does this constant maintenance or holding fast of our faith look like? What what does that even mean? And, And I struggled whether or not I should even say this because I know this might offend everyone in this room. What it does not look like is focusing on counterfeit gospels. There are many things and many things I am deeply passionate about that can put themselves on the throne as that which we pay the most attention to. There are many causes and many initiatives, especially in remembrance today, that can dominate your mind. These are implications of the faith and ways that you ought to be obedient There are theological hobby horses, ones that I cling to tightly. But if you let those become the number one thing, it will dominate your life. And you are no longer clinging to Jesus. You are clinging to that thing. And you can begin to judge other people. Say, well, you're not walking in the light because I maintain my commitment to these causes or these initiatives and you you don't really... The social gospel or the tendency within the church to focus on very good initiatives within our world is so dangerous a distraction because it offers our hearts and our minds a place to rest in light of this challenge to pay close attention. So you can look at your life and you can say, well, I do these good deeds. I give this way or I go and serve this way. It can even be in the church. I preach I minister, I go visit people, I do these good things. But we can be just like Martha and focus too much on service. And I don't know if that's you. Only you and the Lord can answer that for yourself. What was really going on in your heart with these initiatives and focuses. We can think, okay, when I'm asked how I made the gospel a priority in my life, I can point to those things. But that's exactly what Jesus himself warns against. And I wouldn't be saying this if he didn't issue this terrible warning. I mean, this text makes me uncomfortable. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. 
They're calling him Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not offend the oppressed in your name? Did we not seek justice in your name? Did we not vote in your name? Did we not help the poor in your name? Did we not go on mission trips in your name? Did we not give financially in your name? Did we not serve our church in your name? Did we not minister in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So they're doing ministry, miracles, and mighty works in the name of Jesus and hellbound. And this is the danger. And this is why I feel so deeply for this. And this is my concern as a pastoral concern and just as a believer myself that we can take into our hearts counterfeit or substitute gospels. And it's not that any of those things are bad. I would encourage you to give more attention to them as well. The question is, what do you pay the most attention to? What is primary in your heart? What drives you? What motivates you? So what should be the number one focus and the priority in our lives? And what does that look like? So we have to deal with this phrase, to what we have heard. What does it mean to say we must pay much closer attention or the most attention, the utmost attention to what we have heard? Does it mean we just paint Bible verses on every square inch in our house? Or listen only to readings of the Bible and only read the Bible? Well, there are much worse ways to spend your life. But that's not the idea the author has here. I could go to many other places in Scripture to show what this means or what it means to make the gospel or the truth about Jesus the number one focus in your life. But I'm going to let the author of Hebrews answer the question to us on his own terms. He has multiple different sections. As I I mentioned, he repeats this theme multiple times through the book. And the first one, I've, I've written them out so I don't have to turn all over the place. You don't have to turn there. You can just write down the reference if you want to. The sermons are online as well. Chapter 3, verse, verses seven through, uh, 5 through 7, rather. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise that the the unchangeable character of His purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In chapter 10, verses 30, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. From these passages, we can extract a few 
statements that inform us what the author of Hebrews himself means by paying the most or the utmost attention to what we have heard. The first thing is this repeated theme of holding fast or clinging to or holding on to. Again, it's a nautical term. And there's this theme, the idea is like mooring lines that we individually and we together are like a ship in the water. And we need to be lashed to something, tied to something in order to be safe. And the idea is that we all have the responsibility to maintenance or to maintain the tightness and the proper connection of those lines to what we are moored to. Holding fast. The metaphor intentionally raises the question or the imagery of what happens to ships or boats that are not properly anchored or not properly moored. And the storm is coming. And it's not talking about difficulty in your life. It's talking about the great and awesome day of the Lord. Chapter 12 shows that that is what he has in mind. And the hope is that by holding fast to what we have heard, by lashing ourselves to it, tying ourselves to it, that we will be safe when that day comes. The second grouping of terms is this idea that we are holding fast to our hope, holding fast to our confession, holding fast to our confidence. And he repeats these phrases and he uses them, I would argue, interchangeably. He's using multiple words to talk about the same thing. The truth, this this is what you need to take away from what he's talking about, I believe, is the truth, past, present, and future about Jesus. It's a really simple way of defining it. The truth, past, present, and future about Jesus. That is what we should lash ourselves to and to tie ourselves to and maintenance that connection to, to pay the utmost attention to. The truth, past, present, and future about Jesus. He does not use the word gospel here. The author of Hebrews doesn't even use the word gospel once. Euangelion, he doesn't use it. That might be intentional. So this is written around 70, 80 AD. So the word gospel has been in circulation since the beginning. And maybe his intention is to prevent us from jumping to safe spaces. Because if he had said Pay attention, pay the utmost attention to the gospel, the euangelion. Maybe we would have thought, well, I do that. The gospel is real important to me. Because we hear that word so often. It's not that it's a bad word at all. He uses the phrase, what we have heard to make us think. To turn on our minds and ask the question, what, what is it that we should pay attention to? And that's why I'm using this phrase, the truth, past, present, and future, about Jesus, because that's what's evidenced in this, the entirety of this book. It's dedicated to the truth, past, present, and future about Jesus. His role as our priest, high priest, his role as our king, and his role as the judge of the world. So this is the heart of the question. What does it look like for the truth about Jesus, past, present, and future, to be what you pay the most attention to and what you cling to and hold fast to? To answer that question, it's very easy. Because we meet so many people, and we might even ourselves be one of them, where ideas or different ideas define us. Have you ever met the ultra-patriot? I'm not talking about the sports fan. They have a game today, though that's another example. But the person where an American flag, the Constitution, it's like in their pocket. They memorize it. They know all the founding fathers' middle names. The ultra-patriot. And it's not that patriotism is bad. I think patriotism is, in fact, prescribed by the Bible. But that idea itself cannot become the thing you pay the most attention to. And you've met those people. There's also the parent. And what I mean by that is where children and the survival of your children, the well-being of your children, the success of your children is your religion. You've met them. You might have been one of them at a point where it is so defining and so 
all-consuming that it defines every spot of your life. There's the businessman, businesswoman, where career and success and climbing the ladder is everything to them. And that's where they find their purpose. And then you have the activist. There are a lot of those for all sorts of different causes, many of them good, many of them biblically prescribed. But when that cause, when that initiative becomes all-defining, then their life is determined by it. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, is Lord of all. This is what should define our lives. Right? Most, of, most of these truths, those examples I just gave, can be summarized in just a few sentences. Right? Whether you say it's American exceptionalism, or um, my responsibility is to my kids, or ho- however you define it. This is what it means to make what we have heard the number one focus in our lives. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, is Lord of all. Through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he made purification for sins. He reigns today and forever as king over all things. One day, he will return to judge the living and the dead, and only those who have entrusted themselves to him fully, who hold fast to him, will be saved from his wrath and live eternally with him. And you can use different words. I tried to sum it up as as shortly as I could, but hopefully these are truths that you know and believe. And putting all those together, the truth, past, present, and future, however you summarize it, that should be the thing you pay the most attention to. And it should define and drive every decision and desire and plan you put together for your life. After I explained it like that, it's hard to say it's not, right? I mean, what could be more important? But on a day-to-day basis, is it so? Often it's just that we want to get ahead. We want to get out from under the things that are past due. I used to work in the restaurant industry. We would call it being in the red or in the weeds. So often we just feel our lives is just in the weeds and we can't, we can't see more than a few feet in front of us because of everything that's urgent and past due. And it defines us. And the invitation of the gospel is that that doesn't have to define you. The truth about Jesus can. Sometimes it's our dreams and our goals that are not necessarily bad per se, but they are so consuming that they don't leave any room for the truth about Jesus to rule over our lives. You could call it your bucket list. You could call it your retirement plan. You could call it your goals. But those can rule. The next thing that I hope we can see from those verses that I just read is that it's implied that we do this together. Stir up one another. Consider how to stir one another up. Exhort one another. This isn't something that you can accomplish on your own. You don't stumble into this, even in your quiet time. This is something that brother and sister in Christ has to stir up in each other. This has to be made so in a community of faith. We need each other. The last thing I hope that we see from those verses I just read is that it means we hold fast till the end. It's not so much how you begin or the details of your one-time salvation experience and hanging your hat on that. It's how you end. And the question is, are you clinging to Christ? Are you holding fast to Him today? This is why Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Lastly, we come to this phrase, lest we drift away from it. And here we come to the reason behind His exhortation. This is why He is so concerned as a pastor or as a preacher for His hearers. This could be translated, lest we just drift Again, this is a nautical term. He returns to this metaphor, the idea of a ship where the rope has come loose or broken and the wind has pushed it out to sea, either to be shipwrecked on the rocks or the coral reef or lost. 
in the vastness of the ocean. We have to treat this text properly and come to two crucial ideas. This isn't for you to judge other people. This is for you to question yourself, for me to question myself. Drifting away is a real danger for me. And you need to believe that in your heart. If you don't, if you think it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter my intentions to tie myself closely to the truth about Jesus, I can just live however I want, you are drifting. Second, the implication, the logical implication of this text is that if you are not paying the utmost attention, if you are not trying to pay the utmost attention to this, then it is highly likely, if not inevitable, that you are drifting. This is why tying into everything else we've said, it makes sense to come together each week. This is why church and doing this together and sacrificing all these man hours makes sense. This is why it makes sense to move halfway across the country and preach and to do what's necessary because this is a real danger. I have a long list of friends. This is extremely personal for me. A long list of friends. People that sat in seminary classes with me. People that sat in Sunday school rooms with me. And we would sing together and worship together. And we would debate about how to more effectively reach people for Jesus. And we would talk about how to more properly understand the Word of God who are no longer following Him. Who are living openly horrible lifestyles counter to the Word of God. And who care less about Jesus than the garbage in their kitchen disposal. And maybe even less because recycling's a thing. They think it's silly. And they blast everyone they can who has any degree of desire to follow Jesus. And that the response should be just brokenness and sorrow. And it's very hard for me to deal with that. The numbers are very few of those who I went through Sunday school, youth group, seminary even with, who are still hard after the Lord. This is a danger. And we can't hold each other under a black light to see if we were truly in Christ. The question is, today, are you holding fast? And if you don't pay the utmost attention to it, you might be drifting away. So it's true of them, as John said in 1 John, that they went out from us so that it might be seen that they were not of us in the beginning. But those who persevere, those who are in Christ, it's not just like you miraculously arrive there and there's nothing in your life that corresponds to perseverance. It will be those who through intentionality and focus held fast and through, who the through the community of faith and relationships with other believers held fast and those who stirred one another up to love and to good works, those are the ones who persevere. And that's how the Spirit works to ensure that those whom the Father has given the Son all arrive safely. So there is a perfect one-to-one -one correlation between those whom the Father has given to the Son and those who will be saved. Ultimately, in the end. Perfect one-to-one -one correlation. None of those that the Father has given Him will be lost. But those are also the ones who in their lives evidence a desire to hold fast. The response here should not be to beat your chest and say, well, I have kept the faith. I have endured. I've held fast. But it should be a sober reminder that we must continue in this. And the author includes himself, as I've said we must pay much closer attention. So just a few points of application. I want to bring it back to the three questions I asked you in the beginning. Do I take the author seriously that the possibility of drifting from the gospel, the truth about Jesus, is a real threat? If you do take it seriously, what steps are you taking to make sure 
that you do what is prescribed in this text. Namely, to pay the utmost attention to what we have heard. This will obviously take the form of scripture reading, listening to the faithful preaching of God's word, devoting yourself to the study of right doctrine and to prayer. But it also looks like rooting out competing narratives, rooting out competing ideas and goals, ideas and goals and creeds are carnivorous. Once you latch on to an idea or a goal, it consumes all else and submits everything to that. That idea in your mind, the throne of your heart, as it has been called, should be the truth about Jesus. And if you don't take this as a real threat, if you don't believe that there is a threat or a danger for you of drifting away, I would just encourage you, just sit under this text. Just meditate on it. And let the Holy Spirit show you what He wants you to see here. And I can't convince you Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Second question I ask is, what ideas or truths do I run to in order to soften the hard reality presented in this text? Whatever that is, if you cling on to statements like, once saved, always saved, I don't really have to address this. I don't really have to hold fast. My ask, my plea, my petition to you based on the text is that you rid yourselves of those safe spaces and you let the word of God do its surgery. I don't say any of this to beat down those in this room who struggle with assurance. And there may be many who struggle with assurance whether or not they're in Christ. Here's my encouragement to you if you're one of those in this room. The act of holding fast, of clinging It's not an accident that the author uses those words holding fast to our confession and holding fast to our confidence interchangeably. One causes the other. When you are holding fast to our confession, you are also holding fast to our confidence. Maintenancing that connection and making that the number one focus of your life is the thing that gives you the assurance that you so desperately want. So cling to Him. Cling to Christ. Make sure that the truth about Jesus is the most important thing in your life. Lastly, does my life reflect the serious paying attention that is commanded in this text? I've asked it multiple times. I'll ask it again. It's a question that only you and the Lord can answer and that you can only answer by His help. Is the truth about Jesus the most important thing about me. Can you describe yourself to a friend without mentioning the gospel? Can you write a bio of yourself without mentioning the transforming power of his grace? Can you even have a relationship with people without Christ being the center of it because of how important he is to you? So my encouragement to you on this front is to just enter real relationships. There's no other way, as we talked about, this confidence and the stirring up to hold fast is something that happens in community. Stir one another, consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works and exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. If you don't have real deep relationships with other believers, the possibility of your drifting is increased all the more. The brothers and sisters in this room are the way that God has predestined to ensure that you make it safely to the end. We, together, must pay the utmost attention to what we, together, have heard, lest we drift. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the hard texts and that it's obvious that it was not by the will or intention of man that the Bible was written because if it were, it would be much easier to deal with. And I pray that as we have sought to submit ourselves to your truth, that you would change us. And pray that If you're in this room and you need to speak to someone, if you need to pray that you would take this opportunity in these next two songs to do so.
as we respond in worship through song and through taking the offering that you would just take this time to sit and pray as you need to. I'll be up at the front sitting if you need to pray. Whatever the Lord would have you do this morning, I pray that you would respond. And I ask, Father, that you would move powerfully by your spirit this morning, that we would leave changed. I pray these things in Jesus' name.